Okay, I'll quit cursing now that we're on the <laughs> Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places to dive in scuba the news. Obsessed episode 421 is recorded live September 26, 2019. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Or I hate to say it, but I think we're getting into cold and flu season already. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well, and I am putting on lots of DEET whenever I'm outside in oh, the yeah. evenings and whatever. Yeah, I, 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 the, the equine influenza count keeps going up. Well, it, how- it's bad because it kills people. It's not just the inconvenience. Yeah, yeah, what, uh, 30%. Fatality rate, that's pretty high for a disease. Not to mention that even those who survive it, it mentally gives you issues because it attacks the brain. It, it is interesting a little bit, though, when you look at the number of people who've been affected compared to the population, it's not likely. But by the same token, if it happens to you, it's 100%. Yeah. But yeah, the way some of the schools are acting is. It's like Edwardsburg now. They go out and fog the field, Ooh, had permission yeah. slips from everybody to make sure they were deet. They yeah. practiced until 6.30. Then they go into the gym and practice. It's like, I've never seen that before. A, no, this is this. Yeah. But who wants to be the the school who admits that they had a student die because they were going to. Cause you can't say when the mosquito bit them or what they got it from. Yeah. But. If you can't show you took some actions, that's that's and not that's, good. It's unfortunate though because like Friday night I went to the football game, St. Joe, uh, Lakeshore. That's the biggest one of the season. I mean, both the stands are packed. It's packed around it. Tons of people milling about. You know, it's like smuggler's board for a mosquito. <laughs> yeah. You just can't hide from them underwater. Absolutely, yes. You can, if you're underwater, they're they're not going to get you now. Now, getting in and out, that's a different story. Well, I mean, if you're going to walk around in your dry suit or wetsuit with your gloves and your mask on and your hood, you've got a good chance of not getting bit. If you he can bite of- through my, my, my dry suit, then I've got bigger problems. Yeah, I think you'll have more people dying of heat prostration, though. <laughs> yeah. We'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have quite a full group in there. We've got Scuba Bull, Karen, uh, Derek is also in there. And then uh, we've been requested to give a shout-out to Derek's chauffeur, Merv. So, you know, Derek must be one of those rich guys who's got a chauffeur. He's also his dive buddy, though. Ah, well, that that, oh. that counts. And what that, that's, you- that's, that's, that's the best type of uh, chauffeur is a dive buddy. Is that the one who did the shark pictures? Yeah, he said uh, the photos he posted earlier, so let's I just see. went up and looked. There's some shark pictures. Let me see. Ah, yes. That old little nice dive there going on. Yeah, Fish Rock Cave, 820 mile one way. Duh. 
hale and hardy diver to travel that far. Yes. I see Karen's foot's not getting, well, it's getting a little better, but it's not pretty. No, no, that, but it, it looks better than the photos that she had posted on Facebook before. That's so. correct. Th- this one, I think if you're on the weakish stomach, si- stomach side, you could still tolerate it. The other one looked uh, really bad. So, hey, if still you can not, watch, I was going to say, if you can watch, if you can watch a pimple popper, you can, you can look at that. Oh, gosh. That's. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, uh, I, I'm not squeamish, but it's just like, wh- why do I want to watch it? You know, if it's educational or something, but just to watch somebody squeeze. Well, you're you're out. sitting in there eating your cottage cheese, watching, oh, the, and my yeah. daughter goes by. It's like, oh, how could you do that? Well, you know what I said. Well, I know where this cottage cheese came from, and it wasn't from somebody's <laughs> thigh. Uh. And if, if the people out there don't know who the pimple popper is, look it up on TV. Oh yeah, it's a it's a, one of the local Discovery or Health or TLC channels. Uh, she's she's a, got a great personality. Yeah, and uh, does it seems to do a lot of good. And the people who get that done need to have it done, and oh, obviously yeah. it's outside their budget, and they're obviously taking these cases because they're good video. Yeah. Not to mention, it really helps them. And it it opens my eyes. I didn't realize all the odd things that people can have that happen. I mean, we're kind of used to mainstream types of diseases and problems and accidents. But some of this you think of just how tough it has to be for some of these conditions. Oh, absolutely. And it gives you a perspective that maybe you shouldn't be as judgmental as you might be. Yeah. Or, or there's, or there's times where you go, and, you know, you, you're upset because your ankle hurts or your elbow hurts, and you know, here's somebody who's got a growth on their head for 20 years, and they can't, you know, wear a hat, or it's just, that's tough. So, not quite scuba diving related, but let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. This first article we have is a th- lawsuit on a 13-year-old boy's death targets scuba diving company and a diver's organization. The lawsuit was filed by the 13-year-old uh, Tumlet Scott, and T-S-O-G-T. Uh, he drowned during a guided introductory scuba diving tour in January where he and his family were visiting from Mongolia. The complaint claims that he drowned as a result of being left unintended by his instructor during an introductory open-water scuba dive. The lawsuit names multiple defendants and accuses each of gross negligence. Records claim they failed to ensure the safety during the dive and details each of their roles in the drowning. According to suit, Tyler Brown was a PADI certified dive instructor responsible for him during a dive. Attorney says Brown got separated from him and three other divers he was paired with underwater and that Brown improperly delayed reporting the boy was missing. Hawaii Water Sports sold uh, the boy's parents' scuba diving package, assured them numerous times that he didn't need any experience would be supervised throughout the dive. The p- complaint claims that Sheila Jordan, captain of dive barge, which transported him also held the call emergency personnel, the timely matter. And they realized that he was missing. The lawsuit also targets introductory scuba diving program called discover scuba diving experience, which allows completely inexperienced children to dive in the open ocean at depths of 40 feet with only a single dive instructor provided direct supervision to four novice divers at the same time. DSDE program is licensed by PADI, 
The lawsuit claims Patty is also responsible for his death, the issuing diving instructor certifications. Records claim Patty recklessly decided not to require a pool-based introductory session novices and knowingly put them ahead of their safety for the sake of selling more scuba diving packages. His body was found by lifeguards in approximately 50 feet of water in the bay. He was transported to Queens Medical Center where he's pronounced dead. Uh, Cohn is reaching out to the defendants for comments uh, and they will update their story as it's available. So you can follow along in the show notes. We'll have links to this. Um, It'll be interesting to see where that goes. Yeah, I, I think there's been some stuff left out, and unfortunately, I'm not a scuba diving instructor, so I can't tell you what the exact details are, but I don't think it's a four-to-one ratio for this type of diving. I think what they may be leaving out is that there was probably only one dive instructor for four, but I thought it was a one-to-one or a one-to-two. But that it could be like a was it dive master the the one before yeah the, the dive master is a, yeah so you would you you would have somebody else with them I don't I'm not aware of being four to one because that you know not being an expert but four to one at fifty feet with people who haven't put anything on before that does seem to be you know taking a little bit of a chance there I get shaky even when we're working in the pool. Mm-hmm. You know, every year, because, I mean, I, I go down with the camera, I'm watching. I don't notice them having four-to-one ratios, but they do a really, really good job of making sure everybody's comfortable in that first five foot of water. Yeah. And then they, they're they on top of them the whole time. Plus, you've got other experienced divers in there, like myself, watching them just to make sure they don't screw up. Yeah. I, now, I've done a Discover Scuba in a pool. That doesn't and, matter what I'm talking. And that one you can have, I mean, I've seen 10 to 1 ratio on that. You know, okay, I've never two. never seen that. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, if that's the one I did. They just kind of threw it on. But, I mean, the that particular pool we were in was six feet deep. Uh, so it's kind of like, well, stand up. Yeah. <laughs> you can, yeah. Uh, and that not to say people can't hyperventilate or panic or have something else that happens, but. You know, in a pool and close situation, I can see a higher ratio, but, you know, 50 feet, that's. You know, and if they're certified for 40 feet or allowed 40, how, how could he have been in deeper water to begin with? Well, was there a current? I, I don't know. That's the stuff, like I, you said, I don't I think, know. I think, see, this is where it didn't say which, didn't say was he, because you've got those resort courses. And that's what this sounds like, where it's not, it's not really a, it's like a diving escort. And I, and I believe other than just showing you, here's the buttons and breathe, uh, I, but there, there, there's a limit on depth. Uh, but doesn't, it, doesn't what was his age? Did they, they say, oh, that's, yeah, that's a tough one. Well, hopefully we'll hear some more as this uh, progresses. And then uh, beer cans, drones, and nearly 250 pounds of trash were pulled from Bunsen Lake in a weekend cleanup. Hundreds of beer cans and bottles, fast food containers, paddles, and even a drone were pulled out from the lake this weekend. A team of 15 scuba divers uh, worked in the volunteer, I said volunteer, 
worked with Vancouver scuba diving shop, diving locker, and pulled out almost 250 pounds of trash out of the lake just north of Anmore. Diving instructor Tess, Tess Headbridge said she's disappointed to see what people leave behind. Quite interesting to see all the people are just visiting the lake and they actually see us. So many people actually take pictures of us cleaning up. They're totally stunned about the trash. I think definitely just more awareness about the garbage that we leave behind is important. While she says it's great working as a team to clean up, clean up she sees as much trash being left behind as discouraging. It's always great to see people coming together at the same time. It's quite devastating. I mean, some items like sunglasses, paddles, you do drop stuff, that's fine. But all the trash, like from picnics and drinking, is definitely a little disturbing. Uh, Headbridge has helped clean up Lake uh, Alice Lake and Furry Furry Creek. That is Furry Creek. I, I thought I was misreading that. In the past, and says she wants people to do better with their trash. I wish they had some photos of that. And then uh, the this is one we've covered before, the uh, Pensacola Bridge Project, uh, $417 million is what the project cost. Uh, they've just been moving uh, vehicles from the 60-year-old structure uh, to the new bridge. We've been out there a couple of years. People have been seeing the construction going on, but they might not realize the scope of the entire project, said Satter, who expects the work to continue to at least... 2021 they said what to expect next the traffic has shifted from the from the old bridge the new bridge the new bridge isn't complete yet they said they're still working on a 10-foot wide multi-use path for pedestrians and bicycles uh, which will flow underneath the bridge's arch support should be open by the end of the year Uh, they said what's also happening is the old bridge is being demolished the second expanse has a new bridge that'll eventually be built in the path of the old bridge Right now, our priorities are getting finished with the new bridge and recycling the old bridge. Workers will haul rubble from the old bridge, several sites in the Gulf of Mexico, to create artificial reefs. The entire demolition project is expected to stretch through the middle of the year. Uh, The demolition will start on the Gulf Breeze side with two demolition teams leapfrogging across the bay through the process using cranes. Crews will lift the sections on the barges when the debris will be moved to the reefing site so we had uh, i think last time we had talked about that they hadn't decided there was some people fighting that it was going to go into the water they were upset because they looked at it as trash uh so it'd be, it'd be nice for somebody to do a study on that you know take some video and and look at it and see what it's like now when it's first placed and then see if it actually does become a nice artificial reef and how that, you know, corals and other items will grow on. Mm-hmm. Just as a side note, and you can you can erase this. I don't see where you were at on my list of items. Did I send the wrong list? I don't see that one. <laughs> wow, I'm sorry. I think I, I, that one must, it was in my show notes, but not in my show notes. How did I get oh, that up there? Yeah, because you jumped over the St. Joe neighbors, and I'm talking, okay, where is he at? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm all over the place. Here, let me have another drink. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, well, you know, the funny thing is I I marked this, and I, I don't think I pasted it in my notes because I looked someplace else, and I thought, oh, I thought I had the bridge one. And then <laughs> as I, I got my tabs in order, so I'm just uh, clicking on the tabs. So let me hit the St. Joe one. The tabs are a little bit out of order. Uh, 
St. And St. Joseph, which is in St. Joseph, Michigan, uh, one of the ports we frequently dive out of, uh, St. Joseph na- neighbors worried about the shrinking shoreline. Some residents are concerned about the shrinking shoreline. The beach itself is probably a hundred yards of beach that's now below the water in there about 2013. That's an odd sentence. Uh, Great Lakes levels have been high, including Lake Michigan came close to breaking the all-time record high, which was set in 1986. Chronologically, the high lake levels led to beach erosion for the east, uh, for the coastal areas along Silver Beach, Discordia Beach, and Lions Beach. Some residents close to the, to put street, some residents choose to put steel retraining walls and rock barriers to protect their properties. My neighbor just down the way had to put up their own seawall. St. Joseph City Engineer Tim Zebel said the city has taken steps to protect the areas around the city. There's a combination of things that have been done. It's predominantly a steel wall south of the water plant, but there's also rock revetment along there too. The city of St. Joe is looking at both short-term and long-term solutions with recommendations from the study that had been done with, I'm not even sure who this is, Abin March. Some residents like Thornburg said there are solutions that could be developed with modern technology that would be beneficial to the whole community. It'd be better to have some community-wide programs and help them stop wave action before it hits the beach. This happens every time. Yeah. And, how, how did you how did you post a picture in here? Like the the pins. I was going to post a picture of the shoreline for a second. If you take the photo, I got it. And and I think if you you should be able to just drag it. Okay, hang on. Into I'll the message that. bar, or you can hit the plus sign. The plus sign will let you browse to it. Okay, I just did it. I don't know if it'll come up. Yep, I got it. Okay. Yeah, look at that. That's that's right to the bank at that particular spot. Is that's north of uh, the river, isn't it? That's north of Saint Joe, going up toward South Haven. Mm-hmm. But it gives you an idea of the severity of the erosion we're having. Yeah, but the the thing that people are naive if a a uh, a seawall just slows it down. Well, take a look at the second picture because seawalls plus the barriers make a difference, as you can see by the second photo. Yes. But the other aspect, I'll do one more and I'll leave you alone on that. Yeah. But I, can I mean, find it. that is slowing it down for now. But if we have a couple more years of that, even that seawall is going to be gone. Well, the other key, though, is the top picture and the third picture. That's not from the water. That's from erosion, wind, and rain at the surface. It's a combination we're having of erosion based on the floodwaters and stuff, plus the beach erosion from the action of the lake itself. Yeah. Uh, my my grandfather used to have arguments with this engineer, and this engineer would claim that he could make a seawall that the lake wouldn't take out. And this was before the, the 86 high water mark. But this well, guy, you know what that's was, you know what it's called, don't you? A dike, that? a dike. Oh well, yeah, you could do a dike, yeah, <laughs> certainly. Yeah, you want to you want to do one of those. And because uh, this, this, what this one guy did is he said he had this way of uh, it was these nylon tubes and he'd pour concrete down it, and he was all insistent that because he could do that he get he get these it was like concrete fingers and it would stop the erosion. 
And uh, there was a big storm, and my grandfather, next time he saw him, he said, hey, how'd they hold up? And he said, just shut up. <laughs> you know, he, he I can't remember how many tons he said he had poured, but he couldn't even find the concrete anymore. The storms had just pulled him out. That is a process that we used 20 years ago that you could form shapes using the tubes and then pour in the mm-hmm. concrete. But like yeah. you said, depend on the way the action is and the depth of the water, that wave action can kick your butt. Yeah. And that's what it was. It's, you know, with enough time, effort, money, you can, you can certainly slow it down and you may, but like you, like uh, a dike, I mean, that's the Netherlands right there. Yep. Yep. But I'm sorry, your, your million dollar house, which 30 years ago was a $80,000 house, uh, isn't worth somebody to spend a billion dollars. And that's what these people want. Yeah. They, they want somebody else to foot the bill to put up a seawall so that their summer resort property holds up. You're really just borrowing that land. It's not going to be there forever. If you're within a quarter mile of Lake Michigan, given enough time, that will all be in the lake. But that was a local story. I thought that one was was interesting. And thanks for the photos. Those are some nice shots. What was that second one there? Well, you've got the cliff where the erosion is taking it down, plus the no beach. The mm. one at the bottom, I call that cardiac climb, because if I had to go up and down that damn ladder, I'd be dead. Yeah. Or I'd be in damn good shape. The The funny thing is I think I know the guy who builds those ladders. Well, there's a couple who are really smart, and it's, it's like a zip line down, and they have a winch to, on a pulley that pulls them back up. That's oh, okay. the one I want. Yeah. You, know, you don't have to walk. Yeah, I want that reverse the, zip line. Yeah, because the guy I knew who was doing them, he had a way where it touched at the bottom and it touched at the top, and the rest of the stairs was pretty much suspended. And that's what yeah. that one looks like because it, even with the hillside sliding, there's still – but that is – you have to really want to go down to the beach. Again, the the majority of these who have this have a, a lying down with a trolley car that goes on a rail up and down, and that's the only way to do it. Cause Cause that, that's, that's 150, 200 feet up, wouldn't you say? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, yeah. that's a stair climber. You can cancel your gym membership if you live there. Yeah. <laughs> just, just go, go down, pick up a rock, take it to the top, do that three times a day, and you're set. And I got the bridge again. Okay. Are we into Spanish the Spanish drought? drought? Oh, yes. Spanish drought, that sounds almost like a meal. It's something you can, you can go and buy a Spanish drought at the restaurant. Uh, the drought in Spain has revealed an ancient stone circle, which usually stands hidden beneath the waters of, was it Valshation? I don't know. I, I can't. Too many special characters. Reservoir in the western Spain. Its so-called Spanish Stonehenge is just a small piece of the ancient Spanish landscape flooded by dam construction in the 1960s. The exposed rocky floor of the reservoir today is punctuated by about 150 granite stones and concentric oval rings around the chamber about five meters wide. I was going to say miles, but M must be meters. Meant to enter through the megalith line passage facing east. It earned a nickname Spanish Stonehenge. But that's something of a misnomer. Unlike Stonehenge, uh, it wasn't built as an open-air monument. Standing stones visible today are the framework of a burial mound 
Once the spaces between the concentric rings would have been filled with earth and pebbles, the vertical stones would have supported the roof of horizontal slabs, and earth and mound would have covered the whole thing. You can see the remains of the structure in the bank and sand and gravel that now surrounds the standing stones. The inner ends of the passages marking the entrance of the main chamber, one standing stone uh, bears the carved image of a snake and several cups. Archaeologist Ramirez describes the stone as engraved, showing a human body with bound shoulders and a severed head. On one side of the body, there's a sinuous line with a triangular head, which could be described as a snake. Uh, very similar images have been found engraved and painted on the entrance of other dolmen in Spain, and the direction of the passage means that the morning sunlight would illuminate the image. Archaeologists have documented more than 400 similar monuments in Spain, mostly <coughs> excuse me, among the routes of the Targus and Durgo rivers, usually associated remains of the earliest farming settlements in Spain. So that was a uh, so that would have all been covered until they they flooded the reservoir or had it eroded even before the reservoir filled up. Must have been before the reservoir filled up. Yeah, because it didn't seem like you'd have a lot of current in that spot of the reservoir. Because usually it goes the other way. Your reservoirs will silt up and bury everything. Yeah. Did you see my little note? I thought it was sort of interesting when comparing those with that new bed that's going around. So the rock cairns stacking stones? Yes. Yep. Do you have you seen that? That was an article in the paper on that the other day, locally. No, I have people doing that. Oh yeah, that's it's considered a big deal now. I mean, like current living people or Yeah, yeah. They're making them? Yes, I was going to send you one because it sort of reminded me of that. Let's see if that comes in. Do you see it? Now, if you had done that and then it flooded up, you'd have something sort of like what you have now. I mean, how yeah. would you know that? You know what I'm saying? Maybe that was their method of stacking stones back in the day. Oh, like like that one. Yeah. <laughs> that possible. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that they, yeah, because you don't know with, you know, how it stacked and eroded. I mean, the fact that they're up and down kind of makes you think that they were placed, but it's hard to tell over time. Right, and I've never been to the one up here on Lake Michigan. Remember the Stonehenge one? Yeah. It's on 50 foot of water, around 50 foot of water. You wonder, is that like this one? This is what this reminds me of. This is the one up, up north of us in Lake Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. I... But since we know that 6,000 years ago, that was dry. It's very possible. Stacking stones. And how about this for some photos? I I couldn't tell if this is a current article or reprint. Sometimes some of these are reprints. But the eerie pics reveal secrets of the last U.S. warship sunk by Nazi U-boats in World War II. Patrol boat USS Eagle PE-56 is located a few miles off the coast of Maine, New England, USA last year, ending the decades-long mystery. A private dive team, dive team later investigated the shipwreck, which is located five miles off Cape Elizabeth and 260 feet below the surface of the sea, sinking the USS Eagle on April 23, 1945, was originally blamed on a boiler explosion. 
but the Navy wow. concluded in 2001 it had been sunk by a German submarine, the U-853, seven days before Nazi dictator Adolf Hitler killed himself in the bunker in Berlin. Only 13 of Eagle's 62 crew members survived as they were plucked from the water by a nearby Hel- uh, Navy destroyer. The U-853 was struck off Rhode Island, New England, on May 6, 1945, the day before Germany surrendered. All the crew drowned on what was the last U-boat to go down in World War II. Diver Ryan King and his dive team worked with the Smithsonian Channel to extensively explore the ship. Uh, Mr. King told Fox News when the torpedo exploded, she snapped in half. Only one man got out in the bow section. Twelve men made it out of the stern section. The explosion of the wreck was featured in a three-part series, The Hunt for Eagle 56 on the Smithsonian Channel. During his dives, Mr. King said he could clearly see Eagle's deck machinery, its massive 16-foot deck gun on top of the forward crew quarters. It's really a humbling experience when you're down there and you're not just on a shipwreck, you're on a grave site. We haven't touched things. We made a point of staying out of the areas where there's evidence of human remains. That was not a big boat. That ship length was only 200 feet. I was looking at a picture of it. Yeah, it's... And it was yeah. built in 1919. So it was, it was, I don't say it was old, but it wasn't a, a new, because I mean, we were cranking out boats like crazy during the war. Yeah. So, so that one had been there a while. Well, they'd been through the end of World War One. Yeah, it's had uh, 56 enlisted men on it. Five officers, I think it said. And I'd be curious, it said it was four, uh, four inch 50 caliber gun, guns, which that's something I'm not familiar with. Three M2 machine guns, 12.7 machine guns. So there was some good arm, armament on it. And looking at the picture of it, there's a big size cannon on the bow. Did your article have a picture of it or not? The article? Yeah. Yeah, they, they, then they also have a reconstruction. So they show. Okay, I didn't see it. That's why I asked. Say. There's a sailor's boot, which is pretty sad. Yep, I uh, see the other picture you're talking about, too. Yeah, you can see the cannon up there by the pilot house. Yeah. Oh, I had a picture of the uh, submarine, too. The U-553. Uh, yeah. How deep did they say that was? 160? 200? 260 feet. Yeah, not your normal sport depth, though. No, that will keep stuff on it a little bit longer now that it's been discovered. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, you're not going to pop out there with your snorkel or free diving. Yeah. I just printed a different perspective so you can see the cannon in the front pretty good. It doesn't look as big in the photo you just shared. I know. That's what I thought was interesting about it. And I clicked on it again, and then when you see all the sailors on it, uh, 200 feet, pretty pretty ugly looking though, isn't it? Not sleek and yeah. stuff. No, it it's, I mean, it's that almost has like a tugboat type of look to it. It does, doesn't it? Like like uh, or uh, a workboat, maybe one that you'd be using the drop buoys or something. Yeah, because it does have a little bit of a, uh, you know, open deck towards the tail or stern. Yeah. But, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a huge one. No, those are nice pictures they did, though. 
Yeah. And then it looks like they did the Smithsonian Channel did a reconstruction probably for the video. So have to keep an eye out and see when that comes mm-hmm. out. And this one a little bit closer to our home. Marine Enthusiast 63 discovers a 140-year-old shipwreck in Lake Michigan. Two wooden schooners collided and sank in Lake Michigan over 140 years ago, been found by 63-year-old diver and maritime history enthusiast Bernie Hellstrom of Boyne City, Michigan, was scouting for shipwrecks in 2010 when the depth sounder's boat identified a large mass. The object was a roughly 200 feet, 60 meters, underwater in a remote area between Beaver Island and North Fox Island. Hellstrom was sailing approximately 50 miles from the schooner's alleged collision site at the time. I've made hundreds of trips to Beaver Island, and every trip I go out, the sounder is on. Hellstrom told Associated Press on September 20th, 2019. But if you happen to see something that's not normal, you go back. There are a lot of nothing but fish schools, he said. There's a 400 feet of boat. There's nothing out there that's a that's missing. His interest peaked. Hellstrom returned to the custom-made camera system in June 2019. He discovered a ship's graveyard. Long lost was at uh, Peshitago and St. Andrew's schooners are resting 10 meters apart on the bottom of the lake with a mass lying on top of one another. Hellstrom brought experienced technical divers John Jansen and John Scholes and to record video footage of spectacular wreck. Wisconsin-based maritime historian Brendan Ballard was also recruited to help identify the ships. According to Shipwreck World, Jansen and Skull's footage revealed evidence of a dramatic and violent disaster that sank the two schooners over 140 years ago. A huge hole in one of the ship's hulls told the team the vessel sank quickly. The Peshitago uh, was 161 feet, approximately 49 meters long. It was carrying a cargo of coal from Erie, Pennsylvania to Chicago. The St. Andrews is 143 feet, 43 meters long. Was carrying corn from Chicago to Buffalo. To Pashigo, cargo was strewn across the bottom of Lake, as per details discovered published in Shipwreck World. The ships allegedly sank on the first uh, of, uh, excuse me, sank at 1 a.m. on June 25th, 1878, after colliding in Lake Huron in the eastern Straits of Mackinac. Two of the Pashigo's crews were lost at sea. Second mate John Aldrich and wheelsman John Boyle, a passing schooner, S.V.R. Watson, picked up the surviving crew. Ballard explained the old news reports had blamed the abrupt collision on confusion in signal torches. Conditions were dark and hazy on the night of the ill-fated voyage, he said. After the collision, the the sunken ships were presumed lost to historical archives. According to Great Lakes Shipwreck Museum, approximately 6,000 ships and 30,000 lives had been lost at depths of Great Lakes in recorded history. Wayne Lasardi, a Michigan State maritime archaeologist, told Associated Press that Hellstrom's locating the long-missing schooners was a fantastic discovery. The Bashigo and the St. Andrew revealed have been mistakenly identified as two ships up in the Straits for decades. You can argue that any new discovery is important because it really gives you a first-hand look at something that's been lost and missing for such a long time. Kathy Green, executive director Wisconsin's Maritime Museum in Manitowoc added her thought cities like Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee would never have been able to develop without the water highway. She said when material remains, the history is found. It's a big deal to historians and archaeologists. 
So this is the, the one of the ships is a ship that we have claimed to dive on before, which if it's not, if we didn't dive on the St. Andrews, it makes you wonder what we were diving on. Which is funny because when I used to dive it, it wasn't called the St. Andrews, it was called the Ugandi. Really? So somebody yes. renamed it? Yeah, we used to, when we dove that in the 70s, uh, we used to take charters out of Duncan Bay back when they used to do them. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, and the one we dove was called the Uganda. And they said, well, let's go dive the Andrew. And it's like, wait a minute, I've been here before. And when you dive it now, back in the mm-hmm. 70s, when you dove it, it went, you know, sand. Then you had a shelf that dropped another 30 feet. The whole ship was down there, the boilers, the stacks. Nowadays, there's, what, 20 feet of it maybe exposed? That's how much sand is encroached over that wreck. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, it, it's nothing, nothing compared to what it was in the 70s. Time keeps moving. Yeah, Karen in the chat room pasted some nice photos. And what's that video that you posted? Was that... uh with all those boats on the sand, is that one of the drain the ocean things, or no? It's a, it's very it's to lead on to the nineteen biggest wrecks in the in the in the world. My point of the whole thing was what we look at now and consider. Oh, look at that archaeological treasure! Well, take a look at this, and when does that become an archaeological treasure? Because you didn't want it then, you don't want it now. So a hundred years from now, now it's a treasure, and it can't be disturbed. It just doesn't seem correct in, in the way they do it. It's all perspective. It's all in money. Occ- in occupation. Yes. And then here's another one. 118 years after a ship sank in Lake Superior, Gale searchers locate the wreck 825 feet beneath the surface. So that's a little, few minutes of deco. Uh, it said flags... Flew at half mass as a freighter Hudson passed through the Duluth Ship Canal mid September day, just over 118 years ago. The crew of the ship is paying respects to President William McKinley, who succumbed to assassin bullets the day before. The somber start to the Hudson Passage across Lake Superior, in retrospect, perhaps the eerie foreshadowing of what was to come. Not, no, not one on board realized that before many hours would be vainly flying signal distress. The day after leaving Twin Ports, Hudson ran into a vicious gale and sank along the storm-lashed shore of Michigan's Keweenaw Peninsula, and there were no survivors. In the decades that followed, there were tales of the Hudson still sailed the lake as a ghost ship, but for the most part, its story faded with the passage of time. The ship itself was lost at depths of Lake Superior until the summer. Shipwreck hunters Jerry said Eliason of Cloak, Michigan, uh, not Michigan, Minnesota and Craig Smith of Rice Lake, Wisconsin, use sonar and then a camera to locate and confirm the discovery of the Hudson, now resting at 825 feet of water. It is very intact, speared in the bottom, bow first, Ellison said, so the bow is about even with the mud and the stern is probably 20 feet off the bottom, propellers hanging high in the air off the bottom. Or it should be water. Eliason and Smith have been Part of the number of Lake Superior shipwreck discoveries in recent years, including the 2013 find of the freighter Henry B. Smith that had vanished with all hands a century before. The 288-foot-long Hudson was a sturdy steel vessel built in 1888, one of the fastest ships in the lake. 
this is from uh, Professor Julius Wolf in his book, Lake Superior Shipwrecks. The Duluth News Tribune reported at the time that the Hudson at one point was known as the Greyhound of the Lakes. The captain of the ship, Angus J. McDonald, was wedded to the Hudson. A recent passenger, Harry Nesbitt, told the News Tribune shortly after the wreck, he told me on the way up to Duluth that she was the safest boat in the lake and his estimation she would very much regret if he would have to go to any other boat. Hudson carried a load of wheat and flax that set out for Duluth September 15th, 1901. At some point, the Hudson passed the Apostle Islands. A Lake Superior gale kicked up, and the next morning, September 16th, lighthouse keepers at Eagle River, Michigan, saw a sizable twin-stack seamer dead in the water, listing badly. The unidentified steamer suddenly rolled over and sank. The storm had knocked out communication lines on the Keweenaw, and the first only vague reports and confusion emerged. On September 18th, the Tribune reported there was no clue to the ship's identity and no sign of wreckage. Observers say they believe the second ship sighted in the area may have rescued the crew of the sunken ship. On September 19th, their paper reported that given a lack of wreckage, the report of the ship foundered was probably a mistake. By the next day, the reports made it clear there was no mistake. A fishing boat found wreckage, including two masts, one painted black and the other yellow, matching the Hudson. Over the coming days, more wreckage turned up, including bodies of some of the crew wearing life preservers bearing the name SS Hudson. Reports at the same time indicated that there were 25 crew members aboard. Though they were some uncertainty about the exact number, all perished when the Hudson sank. After the wreck, there was speculation the Hudson's cargo of grain shifted during the storm and many of the crew had gone into the hold to try and address the problem. They were then trapped and the ship capsized. Wolf wrote the theory was supported by the fact that only a few bodies washed ashore. The ship also may have had engine trouble at the worst possible time, why the Hudson succumbed when many other less substantial ships came through remains one of the mysteries of the lake. I know the pictures are absolutely gorgeous with that drop camera. And it doesn't, first of all, you take a look at the side scan, you can see the shadow underneath it. And I think uh, Karen also mentioned, just like the Ann Arbor 5, where she impaled herself on the bottom, so the ass end is up in the air. And the side scan shows that. And the pictures of the hull, they don't seem to have a lot of uh, vegetation on them. The decking looks pretty decent, too. Yeah, it looks... Because they show there's a the a photo in the article, and it's a really nice clean photo. And then you see the photo of the wreck, and it doesn't look, I mean, other than a little bit of growth, but for 118 years. Yeah, I was looking at the the big one with the anchor in the front. You've got a, a little growth, and that some of that is going to be rust on that anchor. But that looks in darn good shape. And for having impaled on the bottom, I am surprised at the condition. You didn't see any hole buckling or anything like that no. either. And the well, side scan doesn't show that. Well, and that kind of like leads into the, into the uh, you know, they're saying that, you know, this is a substantial ship, and it's kind of surprising that it's a common others didn't. But if you did have a shifting load, I mean, they, may, they might, must not have had the bulkheads like they do now to prevent that type of shifting. But if that lighthouse keeper had seen it kind of listing the one side and then it rolled over and sank, then... That could have been what happened. It shifted oh, during the storm, yeah. and then there was just, to, you know, there wasn't a lot you can do. So, amazing find, and they oh, they're yeah. finding it because they're looking. And they're they looking, have the equipment. Find it. They have yeah. the equipment. 
Let's see. Do I have anything else? Is that the last one? I believe it is. It is. And then uh, Scuba Bull did share in the chat room a link to some equipment. And I want to see what your impression of it, if you've, you've seen any of this, Mac. I haven't seen the, where you're talking. I just pasted into the chat room there. So Oh, the catalog? Yeah. The, the, uh, well, and, and the one specifically is this $360 pair of foil force fins. Flying force fin, $489? Oh, I didn't see that one. Yeah, that's, that's what came up when I'm looking at it. Jeez, oh, Pete. Well, I, the one I'm looking at is the force, the foil force fin. Oh, that's different. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm trying to even visualize how it works. Uh, some of this just looks like, let's try a little bit of everything. <laughs> uh, there's one for underwater hockey. Yeah, I see that. Accelerating force fin, extra force fin. And these are not cheap prices. I mean, you can buy just about any fin you want for those prices. The flying force fin, I, I just don't understand the dynamics of that. My understanding for a lot of these, it's more appropriate for free divers and or those who are going, you know, spearfishing, going down. I've I've seen the really long fins for free divers. Yeah. Yeah, the, so Scuba Bull has a couple of these, huh? <laughs> I don't know. Did he say he had them or he just saw them? Uh, no, no, I was just kidding, but I just wonder yeah. which one he has. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think we need some with feathers on it. Now, if you're going to get into some style. Ah, uh, yeah. Certainly are different, I'll say that. Yeah. So there we go. That does it for Scuba in the News. Uh, has anybody been getting in the water? Uh, we we talked before the show that there was some talk of some of somebody getting in the, the river tonight. I believe uh, Jim, and since I haven't seen him on, I'm assuming he did get into the river uh, up in Niles again. Uh, Irwin, I think, is going to go, was going to be up there also, uh, both diving the bridges, different bridges. And uh, hopefully we'll get a report on that. Well, then there was Derek in the chat room who also said that you know, he got a dive in with the shark photos. Yeah, that was nice. And the only time I got wet was sort of a job, another job, but they're having a lot of uh, flood problems over at the uh, Harbor Shores. And it's just like downtown Benton Harbor where the drains that go into the river, the river has got so much current, it's flooding the streets. Yeah. Well, the same thing on the pipe in the in the river Instead of draining out, it's being water being pushed back up through it onto the golf courts, making ponds where they were not before. Oh, and they're so, not really comfortable with that. So, so which ponds? Which golf course was this? The Harbor Shores. The really, oh, really, 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 really nice one. The really yeah. fancy new ones. But oh, they yeah. don't want to have undermined at all. Yeah. So I'm going to go out and put balloons in the t- in the tubes next week. And then uh, we'll be putting check valves on them so as we get them from the manufacturer to prevent that from backfeeding. Hmm. That'll be interesting. Yeah, because I, I see that uh, you talk about golf courses near the St. Joseph River. The other one is uh, one that had been there for decades is, is closing. Yes, yes. 
And one of my golfing friends, I asked him uh, earlier in the week what he thought about that. And he said, that place was always flooded, and that was before this year. So, Did you realize that down in that area, it used to be an Indian encampment? I had heard that story. Yeah, if you look at, I got some old, old maps and checking out the, the river for stuff. And one of the sites was that right below the bridge there that crosses over to the hospital. You go down a little bit. And back in the day, that was another place for Burdett's trading post. And just like the Josie Wales where they had the line across the river and the barge, that's how they used to get across. And back in the early days, back in, again, 70s, when some people were diving the river there, they were coming across some very, very, very nice bottles and crocks and ceramics that got knocked over when that barge would go back and forth. So crocs, you say? <laughs> yes. The ones with the three X's on it, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Let's see if this comes across. I'm going to paste this into Discord. Here's a photo that somebody just took tonight. Well, maybe it might not show up. See if see what that shows you, that link I just put in there. Oh, Joshua? Yeah. You mean the storm coming across? No. He did one tonight where uh, – he took a picture, and you can see the Willis Tower, or Sears Tower, as we like to call it, from Warren Dunes. I've only got that, but I'm usually down in Michigan City when I get that. I haven't seen yeah. that. I don't see the picture. Okay, here I'm going to – oh, there, Karen put it in. All right, I'll find it. That's about to screen scrape it. You mean the the orange one? Yep. Uh Okay, I'll I'll see if I can up one. Oh, you you got a nicer one? I took that one. <laughs> yeah, that, you, were, you were the plane. <laughs> well, yeah, hey, it's still a sunset shot. Come on, yeah, and it's yeah. just downtown. It, it, I like that. That's that's good actually. <laughs> uh, the other one I thought was interesting because of distance, but uh, yes, it is. Yours is a a better image, I think. He's got some very nice shots up on the bluff. He's got a lot better lens than I have, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I think he's also doing it for a living. He's, uh, uh, yeah. You have a tendency to do it a little more serious when you're trying to make checkles out of it. Let's see. Diving. Do you have a uh, dive safety story of the week? Well, actually, I got a couple. Actually, a lot of them. I'm trying to figure right. out which one we want to look at. Let's do this one here. I got to move it over here so I can read it. Uh, this is called The Fatal Effects of Rapture of the Deep. Here's the story. Last April, and this is current, Jeff Sharp, a 64 year old attorney from Modesto, California, and his wife, Kathy, went for a dive on the backside of Molokai, a partially submerged crater off the island of Maui, but for some reason, he made an uncontrolled ascent from around 200 feet. Why? We'll never know the true circumstances that led to this tragedy, but Sharp has been seen thinning deeper than he should have been, so he, the suspected culprit is nitrogen narcosis. He was first certified in 2012, 
Intrepid dived the Hawaiian Islands before, but this was his and Monday's first time at Maliki. On this trip, they were part of a group of six to eight divers on a tourist boat dive, accompanied by two dive guides. Most of them descended to around 70 feet, and after a guide pointed out the group of sharks, Monday realized Sharp had disappeared from her view. She looked up to see if he had a problem with his ears and had ascended, but was shocked to discover moments later he was f- swimming far below her. She pursued him, along with one of the dive guides, who'd use a tank banger to try to get his attention, but the guide was oblivious to the, you know, the goings-on around him. So concern, the, guy, the dive guide, concerned he was going beyond the maximum operating depth of the nitrox he was breathing, Monday had almost caught him, but she became fatigued and could no longer swim hard. By that time, Sharp was around 185 feet and slowly sinking perpendicular with the feet down. Question, of course, some people say is, why didn't the dive guy go after him? The next Monday, next thing Monday realized was the dive guide inflating her BC and sending her to the surface. She was lucky to survive the ascent. Sharp evidently came back to his senses but in a panic, took the same action she did. Maybe it was the sensation of finding he was out of air or partially out of air at 200 feet that startled Sharp into reacting. But if that was the case, you know, if he was out of air, how could he have inflated his BC? His cause of death was listed as rapid ascent. Nitrogen bubbles were found in his cerebral and cardiovascular systems, including Sharp had ascended too fast, for previously absorbed nitrogen to safely escape his lungs. Monday, the wife was hospitalized and stayed in the intensive care unit for four days. She suffered a type of heart failure known as, and I cannot pronounce it, it's tachocybocardiomyopathy, something similar to that, which is a weakening of the left ventricle resulting from severe emotional and physical distress. Sharp may have been distracted by the sharks, defied it, and decided to follow one. Also, the currents can affect diving conditions on the backside of Molokai. But that was never mentioned in any report of the incident. A dive guide's or guide's initial reluctance to go deeper than the maximum operating depth of the nitrox in his tank can inhibit one from trying to rescue a sinking diver. Although a wise, experienced guide would know that oxygen toxicity is factored by both pressure and exposure to time. Many dive guides have found it necessary to break that no rule, that rule to no grab, an ill-disciplined diver. One could argue that a conscientious and competent dive guide should have been able to bring Sharp safely to the surface. After all, if Monday a middle-aged grandmother could reach, could reach him, why not presumably a younger, fitter dive guide? Sharp's descent began at the beginning of the dive when divers should have had plenty of air in their tanks. And even if Sharp had been debilitated by narcosis, it should have been a routine matter for his guide to take control of him, make a buoyed lift while he breathed off the guide's alternate air source. But who really knows? That's the item they're talking about. The mechanism of nitrogen narcosis is still not fully understood. It affects different people in different ways and on different occasions. Some medical experts say it starts at 100 feet or less. Others seem to be unaffected until much, much deeper. They were talking about over-the-counter medications can intensify the narcosis effect, though no formal research has been done. Sharp had taken Dramamine before his dive, 
And uh, although he had made many dives, this was his first one below 60 feet. Dramamine's common side effect at the surface can be dizziness or drowsiness, and it doesn't auger well if you're befuddled by the effects of depth and nitrogen under pressure. And it can also exaggerate the side effects of over-the-counter and prescription drugs. It said it's pretty surprising there has been little or no research on the side effects of some of the drugs people use while diving. Almost 20 years ago, I contacted every drug company that made psychotropic medication for data on their meds in hyperbaric environment. None had any data at all. I can tell you that no drug manufacturer will ever do a study on its drug in scuba divers, although there has and has been a study done decades ago on sulfate and Benadryl used in a dry chamber. Uh, the editor, Ben Davison, that's of uh, Undercurrent, recalls how after taking a half a milligram dose of Ativan on a Belize dive he had done many, many times, he said at 135 feet, I saw God. Uh, he said he was quite narked, he believes. Wow. So if you're, so you'll be more focused on the wonderful marine life swimming in front of you instead of having visions of the rapture. Avoid diving deeper than you're used to, particularly if you're taking prescription drugs. And whatever the prescribed medication you're taking, talk to your physician before you go diving to make sure you're medically fit to do so. Stuff we do all the time, but we don't always realize how it can affect us. And well, maybe like, one day it'll affect us different. Well, and like they say, you know, they're not going to invest the money onto it uh, because the, it's like a no-win situation for them. You know, they have to, they're either going to say it's safe and then have somebody blame them when something happened or yeah. they're going to find out that it's not safe. Yeah. So it's probably better just to say that's outside the realm of what we test. Yeah. Well, they're damned if they do and damned if they don't in this case. Yep. Well, very cool. Thank you. That was a good one. Well, I saw another one. We're going to be talking about it. Uh, how do you know when you need to get your computer overhauled or a new one? <laughs> and there are some tips on how to do that. So we'll be talking about that next time, I think. Yeah, that'll be a good one for next time because that's I, yeah. I, I'm interested because I'm at that decision. Do I bother repairing what I've got or can it be repaired or do I just? Well, they were saying the algorithms change so much. They're always being tweaked. Mm-hmm. And how old is your unit? Mine's about 15 years old. <laughs> and I basically just, you know, I'm never going to go deep, deep anymore. But I still like to have it. But I still use my time and depth and the table. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, it's good to use a table, plan your dive, and then everything else is just a bonus. Absolutely. It is for me anyway. We'd like to thank everybody who's listening. If you're enjoying the program, we certainly would appreciate your support. Head on over to our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. You can click on over the Patreon page, and a donation of $3 or more will get you early access to our show notes, and it supports the program. And we're getting here towards the end of the year, and that's when we tend to have a lot of expenses. We have to re-up some of our hosting agreements, so we would certainly appreciate any support you can give us. If not, we understand, you know, five-star reviews on iTunes or wherever you're 
where you subscribe to this podcast, whatever viewer, listener you've got, certainly helps out. Then, you know, if you've got an actual review, any words, hopefully good, but, you know, we even like some of them that aren't. Uh, you can also give us feedback. The show at Scuba Obsessed should get to us. We also have a contact form on the website, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed, on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. Mac, you have anything you want to plug? We, I understand we've got a uh, visitor coming into town. Of course, uh, by the time most people hear this, it will he'll have already been come and gone. True. But, I mean, for the local divers, for the for the local divers, if you're interested in recovery of aircraft and seeing what they have found on the bottom of Lake Michigan, uh, Taurus Lasinko of AT Recovery uh, will be presenting at the uh, Southwest Michigan Airport this Saturday at seven o'clock. Uh, hopefully we'll have enough people in the audience. that will say, well, what about the German submarine? And what are your plans to bring that up? And we'll have others ask about the Chikora that he believes he has found, but will not claim it until he can prove it. Yep. Which is also and, very smart. And if you want to listen to our interview with him, that was episode 314, uh, which is almost ex- was a, 420. I mean, it's been a while. It's been a little over a year. Well, you, can, you should bring your recorder and interview him this Saturday. Oh, I could, we could do that. <laughs> all, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Uh, or we'll just have him back on the program. Give him a chat. To, He'll be more than happy to talk. Yep. Well, I think we were, I think he was, he wanted to wait for this book to come out before he came back on. Right. We were planning on having him earlier in the summer, uh, but his publicist uh, asked him not to do that. So when he's doing a presentation, hopefully they can sell books. Yep. And actually, the funny part is he doesn't sell the books. He doesn't bring them to sell. He doesn't want to have the hassle with it? Well, I mean, I'm not exactly sure. It, It doesn't matter who buys it, how they buy it. You know, because of proceeds, so why bother taking 20 or 30 books every time you go? But when we went to the uh, program, we went and saw him again two weeks ago in uh, Berrien Springs. Mm-hmm. And the the courthouse museum had purchased some, so they were already there for sale. Um, I purchased some to sell if people are interested. Well, uh, when, when you think about it, he probably makes more money that way. Because if he buys them, any extras he takes back. But if the museum buys them, he he probably sold more than he would have otherwise. And well, it also it, it's funny is if you pay cash money for them with no return policy, you get a, another nice little discount. But if you mm-hmm. buy, let's say a hundred, you're not going to do that. You're going to say, "I want a contingency. I can send back the ones I don't sell." Yeah. Therefore, your margin of profit is a lot different. Yeah, and any difference in the margin I get here is I'm donating back towards the Morton House Museum, mm-hmm. who is helping us. Well, we're sponsoring it, sponsoring it for them as a funding fundraiser. As far as I'm concerned, in the way I I put in there, if you come, it's free. If you want to make a donation to the Morton Museum, knock yourself out, and uh, it's been in the paper I think twice this week, and I think they're they normally have a door chart, not charge, but donation of, of $5 when they do their presentations. So obviously anything is appreciated and that's what we'll tell people. Excellent. 
Well, hopefully there's a great turnout. Uh, I got about a hundred chairs I'll, I'll have setting out, so we'll see. Yeah. Well, also maybe if we can get them to, uh, so, so he, he's going to bring up the Jacora. Is that what he said? No. <laughs> what you do is you have read the book like Jim and we have people in the audience who's going to deliberately say, can you tell us about the German U-boat? And then that's done. Then we have somebody going to say, can you tell us about, what do you think about the Chikora? Because if you prime him, he's more inclined to give you some information. Uh-huh. I wondered, I wondered, does he, do you know if he has, if he's seen plans for the Chikora? Duh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Jim and I went to Bowling Green, which has a wreck aspect, and you can actually buy the plans for the Chikora. And I wasn't going to pay the money, but I was looking at them, looking at if I found a wreck, what am I going to use to find it and, and identify it if I don't have names on it? So I looked up the stats for the rudder, which was unique, the prop, which is unique and different serial numbers, and the boiler. Mm-hmm. Those are the big items they should still be around. From that, you might be able to make a uh, determination. Hmm. But rec research, I mean, Bowling Green is really nice. The archives in, in Chicago, uh, we went up there doing some other research. And it really, to me, is amazing that you put the little white gloves on, and I'm reading the logbooks from the lighthouse keepers and the safety, the uh, rescue boat people from South Haven and St. Joe. And, you know, you're reading their daily reports after the wreck, you know. You know history. And now you're reading it as they lived it day by day. It's it's when you sit down and think about the guy wrote that, and you're looking at it, you know, hundred and some odd years ago. It it gives you a little funny feeling. Yeah, and and you're not looking at some transcript that somebody else wrote. You're looking at his, his actual at the book yep. at the book that he touched and yep was writing in. And there's something if you've looked at enough historical writing you can almost tell by the handwriting how old it is because those styles like you know i can remember my grandfather's handwriting versus my dad's versus mine i mean and you can just see going back in time and when you see those old journals and stuff it's it's just interesting some of the the styles they had yeah well it's also interesting too that when you get into serious review of, of data You've got to take certain courses before they're going to let you have access to that because you're not going to get the oil and stuff on your fingers on that kind of paper. And it's not to the, you know, it's not the kind of document the like the Declaration of Independence you're not even going to touch. Well, I saw National Treasure where they, you know, (laughs) stuffed it in his coat. They they watch you out there or was it the other Da Vinci Code or one of those movies where. Actually, they do watch you pretty good, and they watch how you're going to handle it first before they'll walk away. And they won't let you photograph it because the flash screws it up also. See, then that's what I uh, is just amazing is that you can't, is that uh, the flash will will affect it that much. Right. So you can, under certain circumstances, they'll let you take pictures, but obviously no flash. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just have to know what you're doing and take long enough exposure of the right type of equipment. But that that that's still good. It's a I like being able to get access to stuff like that. Well, with the digitals now, you don't have near the problems you had before because you can. There's so many variations you can make with a digital camera 
that you can make anything look good. Mm-hmm. Well, and then, yeah, Photoshop, you can, you know, stitch it together and clean it up and change the colors and all sorts of things. So. Yeah. Well, we got that going on. Um, I think that just about does it. I think we're to that point of the show. Oh, yeah, I got I to gotta add one item. Sorry about sure. that. I went to the Heston Steam Museum. Oh, yeah. A couple of weeks ago. Uh-huh. And if, if anybody local wants something to do, I highly recommend going there. And if you've got kids, I highly recommend you take them. Yeah. The train ride is a couple of miles, actually, mm-hmm. on, on the big ones. Price is a lot cheaper than you're going to get to any amusement ride at any fair. It's awesome. Yeah. You see the movies where the train comes in and blows steam out. And it's like, wow, the kids can experience that on some of yeah. the big locomotives they have out there. Yeah, you, it is really good. Plus, since you're a diver, you're looking at steam locomotion for the engines. Mm-hmm. You can look at some of the engines, the steam engine and stuff they're using out there for everything they do. It gives you an appreciation for looking at the, the, mo- the, the engines for ships, I think. Yeah, no, I I agree with you. Actually, the uh, I I don't know if you're aware, but my uh, both my parents are big time volunteers out there. I know. I spoke to your mother because she was in the uh, ticket cage. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I asked where your dad was, he said he's having to work at the store today. Yeah, yeah. He 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 used to be the curator of the stationary exhibit, so they had the an Edison electric plant there. Yeah, that is that is interesting too. I I mean, yeah, the over a hundred years old. That yeah, sixty that kilowatt DC. Yep, and that's how that's what all the rich people had before everybody else had power. If you had a if you knew you had arrived, you had a fancy estate with one of these electric generators and electric bulbs in your house. Uh, but uh, one of, one of the projects my dad had worked on is they were actually trying to get a boiler. Uh, quadruple expansion boiler and they're going to have a stationary exhibit of that and uh but it it ended up not going through but that that is you're right that is a great place to go i don't you can't beat what you see and it's 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 a beautiful place they've done heck of a job with it hopefully it's there for a long time if you're in the the trains it's the micro the micro trains the miniature trains i mean you're talking five inch uh, seven inch rails 11 inch rails well it's five Seven, eleven, and twenty-four, thirty-six. Yep. It's like the trains are awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they've got uh, a lot of unusual types of trains. Uh, if you grew up in Chicago, there's some trains that you used to ride in Chicago as parts of uh, different locations, and uh, those some of those have been moved over to uh, Heston. Uh, they have uh, a Shea engine. Um, I'm at the top of my head, I can't remember what all the other ones are, but there's there's quite a variety. Yeah, uh, steam. Uh, they have a steam powered uh, sawmill, uh, steam powered steam powered tractors, and and Labor Day show is amazing. You, probably the best deal is if you do Father's Day. Father's Day show you can is uh, really a good a good time as well. Well, they have a Halloween. Yep, they'll have a Halloween the horror train. tour, and then they have the Christmas one. Yep, Christmas train, and if you got kids and they want to see Santa, there's usually a, a Santa Claus. So yeah, it's worth going just for the train rides for the kids. Yep, I always have fun. 
So let's see here. I, I think I've I've got. Uh, let's see if this first joke will do it. If not, maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll have another one. Uh, a magician accidentally turns his wife into a couch and his two kids into armchairs. He started to panic and thought to himself, "What on earth have I done?" He began to ponder, "How am I going to bring the my beloved family?" So he thought for a while and decided a good idea was to take him to the hospital and see if the surgeon could operate on him and bring him back to life. So he loaded him in his van and rushed to the hospital. He walked up and down the hall until after some serious surgery, he asked the doctor, how are they? The doctor replied, comfortable. <laughs> subtle. Yeah. Very subtle. Yeah. So, so he, maybe this one. Let's see how, how this one goes. A group of men live and die for their Saturday morning golf. One of them transfers to another city, and they've, they're lost without him. A new woman joins the club, and when she hears the guys talking about the golf round, she says, I played on my college golf team. I'm pretty good. Mind if I join you next week? No one wanted to say yes, but they were on a spot. Finally, one man says, okay, but we start at 6.30 a.m. He figures an early tea time will discourage her. The woman says, this may be a problem, and asks if she can be up to 15 minutes late. They roll their eyes but say, okay. She's there at 6.30, sharp, and beats all of them with an eye-opening 200-par round. She's fun and pleasant. The guys are impressed. They congratulate her and invite her back next week. She smiles and says, I'll be there at 6.30 or 6.45. The next week, she shows up again at 6.30 sharp, only this time she plays left-handed. The three guys are incredulous that she still beats them with an even par round despite playing with her offhand. They're totally amazed. They can't quite figure her out. She's very pleasant and a gracious winner. They invite her back again, but each man harbors a burning desire to beat her. The third week, she's 15 minutes late, which irritates the guys. This week, she plays right-handed and narrowly beats all three of them. The men grumble at her late arrival, petty gamesmanship on her part. However, she's so charming and complimentary of their strong play, they can't hold a grudge. The swimming's is a riddle no one can figure out. They have a couple of beers in the clubhouse, and finally one of the men asks her, how do you decide if you're going to golf right-handed or left-handed? The lady blushes and then grins. Well, my dad taught me to play golf, and I learned I was ambidextrous, she replied. So I like to switch back and forth. When I got married after coverage, I discovered my husband always sleeps in the nude. From then on, I developed a silly habit. Right before I leave the morning for golf practice, I pull the covers off him, if his willy points to the right, I golf right-handed. If it points to the left, I golf left-handed. The guys think this is hysterical. Astonished at this bizarre information, one of the guys asks, well, what if it's pointing straight up? And then she says, well, then I'm 15 minutes late. Will that will that get us a little naughty rating? <laughs> do, we, do we get reported from that? I I, I, don't, I, don't know. I think it's fine. It works my way. Now, if you have to explain it to your thirteen-year-old, good luck. <laughs> Actually, he probably already can figure it out. So, well, you know, you know how you can spot a newbie diver. How's that? Well, I'll give you some examples: sunburned, <laughs> Timex watch. Has a nice car, fills in all the blanks in their logbook, no diving-related scars, says, wow, did you see that? A lot. Equipment looks nice, has perfect hearing. Now, 
you can spot an old-time diver by the funny tan lines, the big expensive watch, old jeep with bad shocks, logbook that has volume numbers on cover, deaf in at least one ear, multiple scars, has cylinders older than you are, talks about making their first wetsuit, dive gear is faded, and limps from having dysbaric osteopos... Yeah, I can't even pronounce it. Basically, you scribble. And then they said you can also spot a diver by the funny tie lines. Big watch says, huh, a lot. Bad shocks and springs in a car. Scars from trigger fish bites. And an expertise or an expert on antihistamines. And the funny part is there's a lot of truth in all of those. It is. Huh? <laughs> so until next time go out there and get wet and stay safe In the chat room, he's saying, uh, uh, Derek was saying, Merv doesn't know what's about to happen. <laughs> Thanks for the show. <laughs> well, what, what's it at the bottom of Lake Michigan and Shakes? I don't know what. Under a shrek. Oh. <laughs> you want more? <laughs> <laughs> you got more? Uh, what was this in here? Uh, what, did, what do you hear? Duh. Did you hear they crossed a snowman with a shark? No. All they got was frostbite. <laughs> yes. Oh. oh, what's this other one? I quit my Patty Underwater Communications distinctive specialty course when my instructor switched to Nitrox and Trimix because I refused to be spoken to in that tone. <laughs> oh, somebody's got to think about that one. Yeah. But if you're a diver, you know what I mean. Yeah. Let's <sighs> see. Time for Craig to leave. <laughs>